bit. Okay, so today is a very typical teacher kind of day because we're having to wing it. And teachers, I was a teacher for 33 years, and I'll tell you, one of the things we really learn is how to change it up when we have to and how to do it on the fly. And so we're getting some experiences of that right now. Um, And as a teacher, one of the things that I used to do was before every new thing that I taught, we went over old things. And we have not really done that together. We've not reviewed anything. So first things first, let's review. Uh, We've been plowing through Isaiah since the fall. And um, I am burning with curiosity about your takeaways. So I wanted to know if you would take just a few minutes to look in your Bible study guides or your Bibles or whatever and look through those first, the first half of Isaiah and share together just one or two, or you know, just find one takeaway. And if that's easy for you and it comes pretty fast, um, would you please be willing to tell us about it? Okay? No. All together. <laughs> so I'm going to take this microphone out and maybe walk it around. Uh, now, we might get feedback because that's what the microphone loves to do when it gets in front of the um, speakers. It'll go. So we'll try to be careful about that. But um, look, take a few minutes. And uh, if you have a takeaway that you're ready to share... Sarah, would you come up here so that we don't mess this up? Forty-five twenty. Chapter and verse I just wanted to say is an expression that I've heard my whole life. But until I came to this Bible study, I didn't know what it meant. I really didn't. So, 45, 20. Chapter 45, verse 20. God says, They have no knowledge, those who worship idols. They have no knowledge, those who worship idols. makes you think about what knowledge is. Thank you. Anyone else? It's open mic. Come on, Jean. passages is in Isaiah 40 where and particularly verse 3 it says clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness, remove the obstacles make straight and smooth in the desert a highway for our Lord the thought hit me as I was thinking through this passage that um, it for me right now today it means there are obstacles in the way 
in the lives of the people that I want to see come into the kingdom. And I need to be praying these verses for them, that God would remove the obstacles and would make the crooked places straight. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Jean. Anyone else? Oh, Joan, who's going to be careful? My voice is loud enough. All right. All right. <laughs> That's what Jesus had a voice like to be able to talk to 5,000 people. Just after Isaiah's call in chapter 6, where God says, you know, he says, how long will God? And he says, so the surface of these lights burned, the second part is the, that talks about closing of the eyes and the, so they do not see, and the closing of the ears, and through, that's been mentioned through and through, yes, it, but it, it makes, it gives me a better context for the gospel. Yes. So when Jesus says, for those who have ears to hear, let them hear, or the prophecies that are re- reflected back when I'm reading gospels are, a situation, but I keep that eye closed eyes and the closed ears, otherwise they would return and I would heal them. Um, but that, to me, that's just been something I can take away, not just when I'm reading Isaiah, but into when I'm reading Gospels. Thank you. Wow. Thank you, Jim. Anybody else? How about one more? Okay, Caroline. I love this book because almost 600 BC, there are these wonderful, wonderful passages of Christ and the promise of Him coming and Him coming back. So I think it's, it's, it's fabulous that this man was given this knowledge of our Lord and Savior so many centuries ago. Thank you. Thanks, Caroline. So, um, my, uh, my biggest takeaway, if I, if I'm gonna summarize the book of Isaiah, I was talking to Beth Soli this morning, I was saying, I was saying, okay, if I'm gonna summarize it. So, um, clearly we've, we're discovering that Isaiah is kind of divided in two halves. There's a first half and a second half. My big first half summary is, we're all in a whole lot of trouble. <laughs> a whole lot of trouble. And the second half is, I know it, and I'm gonna, and here's what I'm doing about it. And rest, rest, and put your trust in me. I have, I have this. I've got you. I've got you. Oh, don't we wish, how many times in life do we wish somebody would say that to us? <laughs> but the Lord says it to us. And, um, I've been saying that to my daughter this week because she's been going through a hard time. So, all right. So, in your hands, I was hoping that we had our memory card. <laughs> okay. May I have one? That's <laughs> good. So, thank you, Janice, so much for making these because they they're all over my house now. My house is covered in scripture because of you. <laughs> um, and Hannah, the two of you have done a great job. Um, this is, uh, um, this says, I'll read it to you, it's 45 
22, let all the world look to me for salvation, for I am God, and there is no other. And we're studying chapters 44 and 45 today, and this verse, this verse, is the keystone to Isaiah. And it's the keystone of this lesson. And everything that I'm going to say to you today flows from this verse. And if you want to know what a keystone is, go outside the building. And above the doorways, you will see keystones. And back in the day, um, when keystones were first designed, they were the art, they were the stone that the Romans put in their arches that, that held the whole entire arch together. So this is the keystone to Isaiah. Um, I love that chapter 44 begins as chapter 43 did, with God's words of encouragement. He says in 43, do not fear, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, for I have ransomed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. Now, these words are repeated, but they have a different underpinning, and he says, Do not fear, for I made you. I help you, and I've chosen you. Barry Jubeb is the author of my favorite and now dog-eared commentary. So dog-eared, I didn't bring it up here. It's, it's falling apart. And he feels that the chapter break that we find between uh, 43 and 44 is that it might have been better if it had taken place after verse 5 of 44 because verses 1 through 5 of chapter 44 are the last of six encouragements that God is giving to his people. They've had a lot of discouragement, as you know. And last week, Janice presented some of them in her, uh, of the key ones to us in her talk. But I'm going to go over all, all six with you so that I can land on number six, which is where we're going to start today. The first one was in verse one of 43. I, for not, for I have redeemed you. The second one was in verse 10 of 43. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord. That's important to him because Everything that's going to happen to them is going to make them feel like uh, it's all over and they're nothing. They're not his witnesses. They're nothing. They're so that's a good encouragement. Number three, <clears throat> in verse fifteen, I am the Lord your King, indicating to them we're still in a relationship. I'm still your King. Number uh, in verse nineteen. Number four. See. I'm doing a new thing. Very reassuring rest. Doesn't look the way you thought, but it's happening. And number five, 4325. I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions or your sins. And um, they probably at that point had felt that all of this had been brought upon them as punishment for their sins. And six... And this is where we're going to land. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring. It, that is a promise. That's 
happened to us, actually, through the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> it's, but for them, it was a promise of restoration, and it told them that they, even though they're going into exile, they still had a future, and they had a hope, and it rested in their God. They're going to be carried far away from their homeland, and they're going to become foreigners, and they are no longer going to be a nation. All their national institutions will be destroyed, and they'll barely be a remnant of a former nation. And all those glorious promises that we've been reading about in Isaiah, that God made, they're going to be hidden. They're going to be hidden inside of them, and they're going to be kept secreted away and perhaps forgotten. So at this point for them, the culprit, the biggest enemy for them, is fear. And it's their fear that leads them into idolatry. Now, we have talked so much about idolatry, haven't we? So much. Why are we talking about it again? (laughs) Because in chapter 44, a huge chunk of that chapter is, again, about idolatry. Why are we talking about it again? Because God is talking about it. And because it is something that we, you and I, we grapple with on a daily basis. Um, It is... uh, it's, it's a peculiarly, can we say that word, pagan practice, but it holds a fatal attraction for Israel because when they look around, it seems to work. It's working for everybody. Right? But me, the cultured and powerful Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, they practice it and look. They, they're successful. And they are attributing their success to the power of their gods. How absurd it must have seemed for Israel, their humiliated victim, to assert that their God, the Lord, was supreme when these pagan gods seemed to have delivered. They delivered prosperity, security, power, prestige, and success. And Israel must have doubted that their God is supreme, and yet... They're called to be witnesses. So, here in verses 9 through 20, Isaiah exposes the real character of idolatry. He says that those who indulge in it feed on ashes, and their deluded hearts deceive them. Verse 20. And he describes how how humans make idols, verse 9, but the Lord makes them, makes them, People, The Lord has made Israel, in verse 20, and that he displays his glory through her. So puzzling. So idolatry has an insidious, destructive aspect to it. It's kind of undercurrent and insipid and sneaky and <coughs> winding. And, and uh, it is... Uh, it, it moves God in these insipid, sneaky, deceitful ways to the periphery of our lives, not the center, but outside. And it gives something else the glory that should be God's alone. 
and it comes in disguises. So we can scarcely recognize it for what it is. Verses 6 through 23 describe the foolishness of making and worshiping idols and is the way we generally think. That's the way we generally think of idolatry, right? Yeah. Craft, you know, little statues and stuff like that. Uh, Big monuments, you know, foreign cultures and stuff like that. Um, But uh, I was going to show you this necklace that I'm wearing. Um, This was given to me as a gift. And the person that gave it to me puts his faith in the power of this stone. And um, because he imagines that this crystal generates uh, power that is given to the one who wears it, and that they'll be endowed with power, protection, and positive energy. And it was hard to receive this gift, as you can imagine, this is the first time I've worn it because I can't hardly really put it on because not because it's not pretty it's really pretty and the person that gave it to me actually made something that's on here but it's because of what my beloved person uh, uh, attributes to it uh, that I feel a sense of betrayal to my God when I wear this um It's a stone. It was created by God. And now it's become a God to someone else. Modern day idols are like that. They often are not nearly as obvious. Now this is a little obvious. But I came across this blog post. I I was very happy I came across it. It was by Gene S. Whitehead. And he talks about eight um, modern day idolatries and I thought they were really interesting very interesting because I saw myself in these and he, he calls them idols modern day idols and so I'm going to read a few of them to you, to you. so the number one that he had on there was people he says many people in our lives can take the front seat they consume our thoughts our actions and our energy this could be a spouse a potential spouse um, a boss or a child. This could be an entertainer or a public figure, like some people are obsessed with politics right these days. And in some cases, this could even be the pastor or a church leader, especially in uh, the Western church's environment where sadly unreachable celebrity pastors are becoming more and more common. Um, and I'm going to tell you about my person that God dealt with me on and I think is still dealing with me but I've come a ways now um, is my son who I didn't realize that he had become a bit of an idol in my life and I um, and the way that showed up was in my expectations I had his life in my head unbeknownst to me pretty plotted out I had it all plotted out he was smart and he was good at mechanical things, so he was going to be a mechanical engineer. And he was going to go to college, and he was going to get his degree, and he was going... <laughs> and I cannot tell you, the first year, uh, he dropped out of college in the first semester. He never went back. 
I spent the first year in utter tears, utter tears of despair. I had, and I still beat myself up a little bit when I say, God, I, I put him before you, I raised him in Christ, I did all this stuff, I did all this, and look. And so, was there idolatry going on there? Yes. My expectations were my, you know, of what my son was going to be. Now, I will tell you a little farther, what is my son doing now? He, he moved to Wilmington on his own. He's, uh, living with his fiance. And they're acting. And they're in a web series right now. <laughs> and it's not further, so far from what I thought, and probably pretty far from what he thought. <laughs> so, but this, but this, but now, where do I spend my time? On my knees. Is that not where I probably should have started out and stayed? On my knees, because my role in his life now is intercessor. Thy will be done. May it be done to him as you have said, Lord. So, he also says, this uh, uh, blog blogger, is that our churches can become our idols. It says, again, the modern church model in the West is producing a spiritual consumer mentality that is replacing the traditional church model. Programs, buildings, real estate all have a place in our church. But when these are the things that prevent us from discipleship, we may have to back up and dissect the situation. Here's a big one for a lot of us. Our ministries. Believe it or not, ministry and religion are amongst the easiest things in life to become idols because when you're involved in ministry at any level it can be very easy to fall into a place of how much good you're doing what's more he says about himself if you're like me then desire for encouragement could become striving for encouragement what that looks like in my life and ministry is that I have to keep a guard against seeking out approval and commendation for what God decides to do through me or my work. There's got to be an an abandonment. You have to say, this doesn't belong to me. This is God's, and I've got to step away from it. Um, Here's another big one for me. Lifestyle and the idol of self. This has been an American Achilles heel, keeping up with the Joneses. This is where you look. You're always seeing, what are they doing? Should I? Oh, I need it. I, and what do they have? Oh, I should have that. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And their child is what? Oh, mine should be that. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I need to. But in today's economy, this idea of social inferiority based on our possessions has translated into crippling amounts of debt and has even contributed to the housing crash market, housing market crash. These insurmountable debts have wrecked many good marriages, destroyed lives, and has rendered entire households unproductive. And this is one that is, this next one, rights and freedom, this is part of our uh, uh, DNA as Americans. We've enjoyed rights and certain freedom that a huge number of people in other parts of the world don't even consider possible. Sadly, the establishment of rights and freedom have become to er, have begun to erode around us into a constant, all-inclusive demand for everything under the sun to fall into the categories of rights and liberty. 
With freedom comes responsibility, and without responsibility, liberty becomes slavery. But when our demands for freedom outweigh our surrender to the cross, our arrogant expectations of rights keep our eyes from the freedom that only Christ can bring. There's only two more. Your challenges. If there is one thing that can always take a person's eyes off of God, it would be life's challenges. Sometimes the smaller the challenge, the easier the distraction. It's saddening how many people navigate their lives from one challenge to the next, never able to see anything. It ultimately robs them of any real accomplishments that God would bring into their lives. And the last one he lists is social media. This new human Achilles heel, the subtle idol of self in its full modern glory, comes in the form of likes, shares, and follower follower counts. This one has led to lower self-esteem, depression, and even suicide. Rather than ditching the social networks, it's now more important to be noticed in a stream of posts that more than 80% of our quote-unquote followers will never even see. Turn Turn this page now. Oops. It's been said about idols in Psalm 115, those who make idols end up like them. And so does everyone who trusts them. Uh, In um, verse 18 of chapter 44, he says, their eyes are closed, just like John said, and they cannot see. Their minds are shut, and they cannot think. And verse 20 says, he trusts something that can't help him at all, yet He cannot bring himself to ask, is this idol that I'm holding in my hand a lie? Jesus says it this way in Matthew 6, 21. And I'm I'm talking to myself. Where your treasure is, there is your heart. And I ask myself, and you may ask yourself, what is my treasure? Where is my heart? So now, all is revealed, and I think we're going to enter into chapter 45. So in response to this idolatry, God says, I am God, and there is no other. And he demonstrates this truth by revealing to them something that only the true God would know. He reveals to them his plan to return them from exile from Babylon, via a world leader that he will enlist as his servant in about mm, 150 years, from which this was written down. And not only does he say that, but he names him someone who doesn't exist yet. His name is Cyrus. And now we know who he is because he's come and gone, and he's recorded in history Cyrus is a king that's mentioned more than 30 times in the Bible and is identified as Cyrus the Great. And in history, he's uh, identified as Cyrus the Second or Cyrus the Elder. And he reigned over Persia between 539 and 530 BC. But what's so amazing 
is that when these words were written, there was no Persia. There was Parsis, our little tiny kingdom. And Cyrus from Parsis, he conquered his father's, his grandfather's land called Medea. And he created, through that conquering, the first Persian Empire. And it was under his rule that, that Jews were first allowed to return to Israel after 70 years of captivity. <clears throat> this comes from Isaiah 45. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him. I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. Cyrus is a pagan. He's a pagan idolater. Demonstrating his sovereignty over all nations, God says of Cyrus, he, and yet, he is my shepherd, and I will accomplish what I please. Cyrus' decree, releasing the Jewish people in fulfillment of prophecy, is recorded, and you might want to write this down in case you want to look it up, Second Chronicles 36, 22-23. And this is what that says. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, um, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. And this is what he wrote. Thus says King Cyrus of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. And other Old Testament books that mention Cyrus are Ezra and Daniel. But also, the historian Josephus says that Cyrus was told of these biblical prophecies that were written about him, and probably told by Daniel, who was a high-ranking official in Persia. That's weird. Wouldn't that be weird? You're Cyrus. All right? In comes this Jewish person who's one of your high-ranking officials holding an ancient text and in there you see your name and he tells you that you're going to do all the stuff you're doing. Besides his dealings with the Jews, Cyrus is known was known, this is now what we know in history about him, for his advancement of human rights, his brilliant military strategy, his bridging of Eastern and Western cultures. He was a king of tremendous influence and the person God used to help fulfill an important Old Testament prophecy. Yes, God used him. But you know what? This chapter isn't about science. It's about God. God is proclaiming to his people Israel that he is God and there is no other, and that he is the God whose sovereignty over all is evidenced even by his command of his servant, time. Because God created time. He doesn't exist in, inside of it. He, it's his creation. And we as creatures exist in time. This is, there is no past, present, and future with him. He uses this revelation for only one purpose. And that's to reassure his people 
that nothing that's happening to them is out of the bounds of his plans for them. And then he anticipates their reaction. And sisters, of all the things are in this chapter, this is what I reacted to the most. This is where the chapter's about the potter. They're like, they... He says, what sorrow awaits those who argue with their creator? He knows they're going to argue with him. And verse 11, do you question what I do for my children? You see, in verse 1, Cyrus is called his anointed one. Wait, I'm a Jewish person. Let's say I've heard that word, anointed one. It's the word Messiah. That's a title that is exclusively reserved for kings in the line of David, and in particular, the one they're all waiting for. The chosen representative who stands at the very center of God's purposes for his people and for the world. And by granting this title to a foreign, pagan, idolater, it might seem that God has washed his hands entirely of the house of David. But God reassures them and he says that he will raise up Cyrus to fulfill my righteous purpose and I will guide his actions and he'll do two things. He's going to restore the city and he's going to free my captive people. And he's going to do this for free. He's not going to look for a reward. Now, I can't help thinking about how the Pharisees of Jesus' day reacted to him. They, too, were trapped by their expectations of who the Messiah was going to be. Their expectations actually uh, tried to overrule who he actually was. And when he came, they couldn't or they refused to recognize him because he didn't fit. Well, do we question what God does in our lives? How do we react when God does not fit our definition of who he is and how he should act in our lives? And this is when I ask myself, are my prayers a laundry list of things I want God to do for me? When I pray... Is it like, God, do this, do that, do this? Or is it like Jesus' prayer? Father, thy will, thy kingdom. Um, In these two chapters, God, via Isaiah, continues his war against idolatry. And why does he hammer on this again and again? Because anything or anyone that supplants the Lord in our lives obscures him. We can't ever really, truly know him. We We can make it up. And people do all the time. Lots of people do. And we craft God in our own image. The way we want him to be, but not the way he really is. The God that fits. The God that fits in our lives. I'm almost done. But sisters, this is idolatry. That God that you have crafted and that you're holding in your hand, ask yourself, is it a lie? But God can be truly known. He says that. He says, I haven't been hiding. He can be found. And he has an elaborate and determined plan to make himself known to every people and every nation. And these are the last verses of Isaiah 45. This is what God says. He says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. 
I publicly proclaim bold promises. I do not whisper obscurities in some dark corner. I would not have told the people of Israel to seek me if I couldn't be found. I, the Lord, speak only what is true and declare only what is right. Gather together and come, you fugitives from surrounding nations. What fools they carry, they are who carry around their wooden idols and pray to gods that cannot save. Consult together, argue your case, get together and decide what to say. Who made these things so long ago? What idol ever told you that they would happen? God's the only one that could tell them. Was it not I, the Lord? For there is no other God but me, a righteous God and Savior. There is none but me. Let all the world look to me for salvation. For I am God, there is no other. I have sworn by my own name, I have spoken the truth, and I will never go back on my word. Every knee will bend to me, and every tongue will declare allegiance to me. And for us, this is the key. When God reveals who he truly is to us, sisters, do we bend our knee? Do we confess and declare allegiance to him? Or do we try to quickly say, no, that, that, I must been hearing wrong, that can't be right, um, I've got to... Or do we bend our knee and call him Lord? And this is what the people respond. He says, the people will declare, and this is what he wants, the Lord is the source of all my righteousness and strength. And all who were angry with him will come and be ashamed. They will bend. They will bow. You are Lord. I am not. You are God. And there is no other. In the Lord, all the generations of Israel will be justified. And in him, they will boast. Let us pray. Father, you must be on the throne. Lord God, out of your great mercy, you'll open up our eyes and you will show us that perhaps what we have in our hand is a lie. Please, Lord, love us. Straight into you. Straight into your heart. Straight into your everlasting mercy. And let us be your witnesses. In Jesus' name we pray.